have a sense of uh, unworthiness to come and pray to the Lord, I want you to know that the sense of unworthiness to come and open the scriptures and teach them to a group of people is almost overwhelming sometimes, but I'm grateful for the opportunity to do just that. Before we get underway with the message, I want to uh, take just a couple of moments and spend some time in prayer. We're coming up on Independence Day uh, this week, so I want to take a a few minutes and pray for our nation and for our leaders. Uh, It... uh, it's distressing to so many people at so many different levels, and it's fascinating to me to come into a group of people like this and realize that some days some of us are happy, some days others of us are happy, and they don't always happen on the same day because we think differently. But I do know this, we want to honor God, right? And we want to see God uh, exalted, righteousness exalts a nation, and sin is a reproach to any people. And so Uh, I want to take just a few minutes and pray for our country before we get underway this morning. Father in heaven, I thank you for the freedoms that are ours because we live in the United States. I thank you for the opportunity we have to assemble here every Sunday uh, to open the scriptures and to publicly proclaim your word to people. I thank you for the freedom that is ours to tell our friends and our neighbors about Jesus. I thank you for Uh, the opportunity to reflect Christ to a watching world and to do so openly. Lord, I don't want us to take that for granted this morning. Sometimes we don't take advantage of our opportunities, and there may come a day, even in our own country, where those privileges are not ours anymore without uh, significant cost. Uh, So, Lord, I pray that while we are yet free in these areas, we would take advantage of them. But today, Father, I want to pray for our nation. I ask, Lord, for our president. Your word tells us to pray for all who are in authority over us. So we pray for our president and our vice president, and I pray for the members of Congress, our House of Representatives, and our Senate. I pray for those at the level of the Supreme Court who make significant and far-reaching decisions that affect our nation. Lord, we, we watch as things that your word condemns are celebrated. And sometimes, Lord, we have watched recently when we have seen steps made that encourage us as it relates to some of those things. But Lord, I'm asking today that our trust would not be in government, but our trust would be in you. And I pray for the United States of America. Father, I pray that there would be an awakening because your people have become faithful again at sharing the truth and witnessing to their friends and neighbors and family members. And I pray not because we have legislated ourselves into the right spot or we have elected the right people into office but because we have been faithful and obedient to the scriptures, that there would be a great groundswell of righteousness in our nation. I pray that you would bless us and bless this country, not because we deserve it, but because we don't. Be gracious to us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we are continuing in our study uh, in 2 Corinthians, Crucified to Live Transformed. 
It's 4th of July coming up, and I know some, I, I have friends who like camping, and they'll, they'll perhaps go even this weekend and spend some time in the great outdoors and put up their tent and all of that. Our family did that for mm, a year, maybe. And uh, I tell you, not lying, my wife would confirm it to you, probably 70, maybe 80% of the time we went camping, it rained. Uh, it was bad enough that we had friends that we were camping with at the time who used to, like, not go. They would say, don't camp with the Wilsons, it'll rain. It was awful. And, you know, I mean, it was just a tent, you know, and I try to tarp over it and all the tricks of the trade and all that, but when it's pouring down rain and it's two in the morning and all the family's in the car while you take the tent down and, you know, fold it up and throw it in the back end, it's just not fun anymore, okay? So... Uh, there is something to be said, though, about the, the fun of being out. It's just a temporary shelter, right? It's, it's, uh, it's not all th- thoroughly wind-resistant. It's not waterproof. I, probably nowadays there's better technology, but, you know, I just think the better technology is Holiday Inn. But anyway, um, <laughs> there's a little bit about life that's like that. And there are pictures in our chapter here, in chapter 5, as we get into these first 10 verses, that talk about a tent, that talk about the temporary residence we have. That's why I bring that up, because I want to remind you, and there was something to me to look forward to, and especially my family, as it turns out, they really looked forward when we were camping to getting home, because <laughs> it turned out I liked it more than the rest of them, and so uh, they hated the bugs, and you know they didn't like if it was too hot or if it was too cold, and when you were at home, you could just kind of decide what temperature you wanted it, and, and all of those things, and uh, the temporary nature of it brought a little encouragement to them, and I hope the temporary nature of your current situation will bring to you some encouragement because I want to think a little about the future. Paul in chapter 4 had just finished talking about the eternal weight of glory that was being worked in us that was far greater in its value in the amount, in the weight of it, than the weight of the what he called light and momentary afflictions that he was facing at the time. And in In chapter 5, we're going to go through just the first 10 verses today, and we'll finish chapter 5 next week, but we're going to spend a little bit of time thinking about home. Not, Not your address, not your house, but home. And Paul spends a good bit of time reminding his people that he's writing to, reminding these Corinthians that You're in the midst of difficulty, you're in the midst of trials, you're in the midst of trouble, you're in the midst of persecution in some cases. Don't worry, it's temporary. He begins talking about his confidence. I should have put this on the screen, and I wish now that I had, but I really love this sentence. When everything around us, and you could summarize this first point of under confidence with this statement, when everything around us is fading and dying, We live with the prospect of permanence. I love that sentence. I don't even remember where I got it. I didn't make it up or I would be happy to take credit for it. When everything around us 
is fading and dying, we live with the prospect of permanence. If you are uh, in the process of purchasing or perhaps have already uh, owned your home, you know that even as you pay off your home, it is starting slowly to fall apart and there are things to fix. I spent a little time yesterday fixing the gate to our backyard because it just was not working right. And so it, it, there's, there's always some little thing and there's always a list of things that need to be cared for because our dwellings, even the structures that we live in, just over time begin to fade and wear out when everything around us and our bodies, the older we get, the more we realize how much they're fading, how, how much they're struggling. When everything is fading and dying, we live with the prospect of permanence. So he talks first of all with, about the nature of our home, that is of our current home. Verse one, we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked, for we are still in this tent. While we're still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He has confidence. We know that if our tent, that is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a home in the heavens. We know that's true. We don't live on luck. We don't live on some kind of uncertainty or uncertain hope or uh, questionable possibilities. We know that when this tent, our, our earthly body, is destroyed, we have a home that's permanent. He's been talking all about being crushed and being burdened and all of the difficulties that were associated with his life as a servant of Christ and just life in a frail and fallen world. And he said, we have a tent, a temporary, weak, mortal structure that we live in now. And it will be destroyed. It's a term that's used literally for taking down a tent. It's a term that is used for letting the lines go so the, so the boat can leave the dock or the ship can leave the harbor. It's, it is taking that which is just temporarily here and letting it go elsewhere. The elsewhere is our heavenly home. It is a body that is spiritual and eternal as opposed to temporary or transient and it's suited to living in heaven. In other words, it is a place where we will be immortal. I, I'm glad Paul writes about this stuff because we've spent so much time watching Hollywood's version of what immortality is like that I think we've begun to think it's all just made up. But it's not all made up. When we go to heaven, we will never die, and we will have a permanent body that will live forever. That's what we know. That's our, that's our confidence. 
in the nature of our home. But at the same time, we have a longing for our home, our actual home. Verse 2, in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. We, we groan, we're burdened. Sometimes just getting out of bed in the morning causes us to groan, right? <laughs> or getting back up out of the chair we've been sitting in for the last half an hour and we groan. I know some of you have that pleasure yet to come and that's okay because your time will come, I assure you. But there's more to that groaning than just the actual, oh boy, that hurts to get back up. Can I read for you from Romans chapter 8? I consider that the sufferings of this present time, by the way, this is very similar to the passage we talked about last week, right? Paul wrote to the Romans and he wrote to the Corinthian church and said very similar things. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected, subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Now, think about that. Creation has also been subjected to futility. I did my lawn yesterday, too. On my list of least favorite things to do is yard work. But it needs done. It's got to be, you got to trim it, you got to mow it, right? Or it's going to look like a nasty forest and everybody around you is going to hate you because your house is the ugliest one on the block. So you got to do your thing. Why do the weeds grow? All the way back to the garden, right? The Garden of Eden where sin came in and creation itself was subjected, not willingly. Mankind was subjected willingly. We decided to disobey God. And so we are under the curse. But the creation didn't do it willingly, but it was subjected in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, this confidence, we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. The longing for our home is based on the confidence that God has said, here's what it's going to be like. Someday you're going home. And it's a guarantee. Verse 5, back in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. God is preparing heaven for us and will prepare us for heaven the moment we step into eternity. The Spirit, according to verse 5, is our, our down payment, our earnest. It's the guarantee. God gave us his Spirit to guarantee that we get to go to heaven someday when we die. So we have confidence. 
and our confidence in what is to come provides courage for what is right now. So verse 6 says, we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Death is not leaving home. Death is going home for the Christian. We've all had experiences in our lives where those whom we love have passed away, have left this earth, and gone to the next. Now, both of my parents, that has happened to just some six weeks ago, Early in May, I was with my dad when he breathed his last breath. He did not leave home. He went home. And that's the confidence that gives us courage to continue to go on through life in all of its transitory, temporary nature. When we leave this earth, we're ushered into the presence of the Lord. It's incredible. Whether we're at home or away, we have this courage. Whether we're living by faith or by sight. What's involved in being at home with the Lord? Well, with implies fellowship, right? We're, we're uh, planning in a couple of weekends, our, our, our kids from uh, Raleigh are going to come and visit us. And uh, we're going to be with our kids. Now, technology today has made it possible. We can talk to them pretty much whenever we want. We can at least text them. We can do a Facebook message or a Skype or something and see them, see a representation of them pretty regularly if we want to. But there isn't anything like seeing somebody face to face, right? Being able to walk over and give them a hug and let them know how happy you are to see them and talk with them and look them in the eye There's something about being with somebody that is way better than whatever relationship you have. So whatever it means to be with the Lord in these several verses has to be way better, some higher form of intimacy than whatever we have experienced now. We know the Lord. We have a relationship with the Lord. We tell people that Christianity is about a relationship, not about a religion. So we understand this sense of of relationship. And man, I have people tell me regularly about their, their interaction as they've been spending time in prayer or time in the scriptures or time in church and the way God has done things that has enabled them to know they are with Christ in a certain sense. But when we are literally face-to-face with Christ. It's going to be so much better. 1 Corinthians 2.9, God has revealed by his spirit to us things that are not even imaginable. We have pictures of what heaven is going to be like, but we have to take it by faith. We're told a little bit in, in images what it's going to be like to be with God in eternity, but we have to take it by faith. However good all of that is, though, beyond the glorified body, the perfection of heaven, and the eternal fulfillment of God's plan, Paul was focused on the incredible reality that death would usher him into the 
presence of the Lord, to be face to face, to be there together. Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Have you thought about that verse? If I were to give you a $10 bill, and no, I'm not going to use that as an illustration because I might not get it back, but... Um, <laughs> If I were to give you a $10 bill and then said, okay, now listen, if you come back to me after the service, you'll gain, what would you expect to happen? You'd expect there'd at least be another 10, right? There'd be something additional to what I just gave you because you're gaining something. For me, life is Christ and death is gain. It's just more of Christ because I'm there, I'm in person, I'm face to face, I'm with the Lord and that gives me great courage as I face not only now, but the future. And that, then, helps me to live by conviction. Verse 9, so whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Ambition. Sometimes ambition is bad when ambition is focused on me, when ambition is something that just I care about what I'm going to do and I'm just going after stuff. But three things in these two verses. Let me read verse 10 while, while it's up there. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Important verses. My ambition is singular it's single focused. My ambition is that I want to please God. Not please God because I need to earn his love, but please him because of what he's done. From the day we heard of it, Paul said to the Colossians, we've not ceased to pray for you asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Paul's ambition was single-focused. I want to please God. That's my desire. That's my hope. That's my goal. That's my aim. Whatever term you want to apply to it, it won't make me more accepted. I'm accepted because I'm in Christ. But because of all that God has done for me already and because of all that's in store in the perfections of heaven and the opportunity to be with the Lord, man, as a result of all of that, I just want to please him. I want to make him happy. I want to do what honors him. So my ambition is single-focused. It's also all-encompassing. Whether walking by faith or by sight, whether at home or away, I want to please God. Everything for me is about being pleasing in the sight of God. Can I say that? As I've thought about these verses coming up to today, I've thought, man, I, I really hate preaching stuff that I'm not sure I've resolved yet, which happens more often than you might think. <laughs> um, is it really true, genuinely in my heart, that my all-encompassing motivation is life, in life is to please God. Paul said that's, that's it. Whether I'm, whether I'm 
on earth or in heaven, whether I'm away from the Lord here or home in heaven with the Lord, whatever it is, my ambition is to please God. And it has a deep motive. Verse 10 sounds a little scary, but it's not intended to sound scary. It's intended to help motivate us to think about what are the things that please God. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. We'll all appear. That doesn't mean we'll just show up. It means we will be made manifest. It will be revealed. We will be revealed, uncovered, exposed, if you will. Now, it's not about sin, right? Sin was judged at the cross. If I'm in Christ, there was now no condemnation. None. That's done. That's over with. I will never have to face condemnation for evil that has been done. Jesus paid for all of that, right? So when it says evil, what is it referring to? It's not, it's not talking about things that are morally wrong. It's just talking about things that are not useful for the glory of God, things that are not beneficial He had written to this earlier in the first letter that he sent to the Corinthians. In chapter 3, he says this, According to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building on it. Let each one take care how he builds on it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, or hay, or straw... Each one's work will be made manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he receives a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved. Here's how John MacArthur describes it. This word for evil describes those mundane things that inherently are of neither eternal value nor sinful. Such as taking a walk, going shopping, taking a drive in the country, pursuing an advanced degree, moving up the corporate ladder, painting pictures, or writing poetry. Those morally neutral things will be judged when believers stand before the judgment seat of Christ. If they were done with a motive to glorify God, they'll be considered good. If they were pursued for selfish interest, they'll be considered bad. Not everything I do has to be inherently spiritual. Every time I get together with another friend, I don't have to have a scripture reading and a prayer or a Bible study together. We can be sociable It is okay for me to advance in my career. It's okay for me to have leisure activities that I enjoy. But if all of those things are done purely with the desire to make myself happy, to make myself nice and relaxed, to make myself some more money, as opposed to using them as opportunities to glorify God and expand the kingdom of God, then they become useless. So the... The judgment seat of Christ is about how, how has that aim of wanting to please God, how has it affected everything else I do? There's a lot of life lived outside of church, right? 
There's a lot of life lived outside of your small group. You go to work. You spend a lot of hours at work every week. Are you there so you can make money, so you can have a nicer house, so you can have a different car, so you can have whatever it is, luxury item you want, so you can just have more money in the bank for the future? Or are you there so you can serve God wherever you're working? What is my motivation? That's the question. That's what this judgment will be about. It's about reward. We'll be rewarded for those things in our life which glorify God and advance his kingdom. If you've trusted in Christ and you are in Christ, you will go to heaven. And it's going to be amazing. It's going to be wonderful. It's going to be incredible, perfect, almost beyond our imagination. But there are also rewards that are going to be given to those whose lives have been lived to the glory of God. It's motivating hope. It's not uh, fearful. It's motivating. So I've got just two thoughts for you to take home today. First is this. Living with eternity in view gives us courage to live with God's glory in mind. Man, it's easy to get just focused on what's right here. Right? What's going on right in front of us? That next appointment, that next date that I've got to keep my attention on, that next situation with my kids or with my parents or with my siblings or, or whatever it happens to be, this next occasion that's coming up, all, there's so much that gets my attention on right here and right now that I forget that it's a good thing to pick my eyes up and live with eternity in view. We're going somewhere. We're not just here doing stuff. We're making progress toward heaven if we are followers of Jesus. Living with eternity in view gives us courage to live with God's glory in mind. And the second is this. If it pleases you to do what pleases God, then you can do what you please. That's a little dangerous to say unless you understand how significant that is. If it is my all-encompassing, single-focused goal to please God with my life, then I can spend less time worrying about, well, what, what about this? Should I do this? Shouldn't I do this? Do I need to do this? Should I take care of this? Should I be over here? And all of these other things that we stew and fret about, will God be glorified? How can I glorify God in doing this? leaves no room for selfish interest. It means that nothing matters to me except honoring God with my life in every area. If that's true, if that's my ambition, if it's my goal to please God, and if that's what gives me pleasure, then I can do what I please because my ambition, my motivation is right. I hope you're encouraged. I titled the sermon Motivating Hope. When we think about heaven, it's not about getting to heaven and heaven, everybody have to, we stand there and we're all going to look at this big old screen in heaven and everything you did is going to be on that screen and you're going to be so embarrassed. 
Listen, your sins are paid for. That's incredible. Nothing you've done by way of sin on this earth is ever going to be brought up again because Jesus paid for it. I know it's really a lot more exciting than your reaction would warrant. But anyway, (laughs) so this is, we get to heaven and we get to look at a screen and see all the things that we did in our life that glorified God. So when I went fishing with my buddy and build a relationship and had opportunities to talk about the things of Christ with him, it wasn't just for fishing. It was for kingdom. Or when you went shopping with your friends and you got a chance to engage with them and build relationships with them and move in the direction of helping them to see the glories of walking with Jesus, it wasn't just shopping to get more stuff. Whatever it is that you're doing, writing a book, writing poetry, painting, whatever it is, if the motivation is, how do I glorify God while I'm doing this, then life becomes worship, right? We talk a lot about worship as a lifestyle. Then I'm constantly on on point thinking about how does God get glory in this situation today? And as we learn to consciously think about how to do that, eventually it becomes part of our subconscious, right? Isn't that how habits are developed? We, we begin to actually practice doing something, and at first it's just hard. It's work. I don't even maybe like doing it, but if I do it long enough in the same way and in the same form and constantly think about this, eventually it becomes second nature, right? It's subconscious. So as I do this with my ambition to please God, Gives me, it gives me pleasure to do what makes God happy. And I find joy in that. So I hope it's a motivating hope to you that what you do can be used to honor and glorify God. You don't have to be a vocational Christian worker. What you do as you serve and volunteer on the Lord's Day here at Coastal matters for eternity. It's not just something to do, to show up and do. What you do throughout the week as you serve Christ at your place of employment or in your home, among your family members, it matters for eternity. So let's make it our aim, our ambition to please God. Let's let the hope that's ours as believers, the hope of heaven, motivate us to live for Christ and live for his glory now. Okay? Well, the worship team is going to come back. We're going to sing one more song as we uh, get ready to leave. But... uh, I want to encourage you, listen, if you're here and you would like free lunch uh, and you're not a member already, <laughs> uh, come on back, be here about 20 after 12 or so after that service is uh, concluded. We'll collect ourselves and head out for lunch together. I'd love to have you be part of We Are Coastal. But listen, I, I hope you're encouraged today. I hope you walk away from here not thinking, oh man, I am in trouble. But man, I get the opportunity to go out this week and glorify God in what I do that seems so mundane. Uh, God can be honored in that. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace to us. Thank you for the privilege that we have to honor you. I thank you that we can do that in the things that we sometimes just consider mundane stuff. It's just stuff we got to do. Lord, help us to do it for your glory this week. Help us to make it our ambition to please you 
in every part of our life, and we'll be grateful for it in Jesus' name.